Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there was an especially wise king. He was wise. But he did as kings typically do. Um, he would hold court every once in a while. I'm not talking just for the courtesans, you understand, but this is for the common folk as well. He would serve kind of as a judge every once in a while. They would come in and he would settle disputes. This particular dispute, man, this one, this one was tough. There were two, how should we say it, ladies of the night, they were prostitutes. They both had become pregnant, and then they discovered uh, they both had a baby boy. Get this, three days apart, both with infants. They were doing as mothers in those days did. They were nursing, and as I understand the uh, tradition in those days, they would nurse their child in bed as they slept at night. And one of these mamas, she woke up to what I'm sure is a terrifying moment. She had rolled over on her baby in the middle of the night, smothered the child, and um, what she did next betrays her character, in my opinion. You probably would be terrified in that moment. You would feel all of the feels of horror and, oh, what have I done? What has happened? What a tragedy, and probably wail and scream and feel grief. She seized an opportunity. There was the other mother there. She swapped her child, the lifeless body, for the living boy. That mama woke up the next morning, and she wailed. She screamed, oh, my goodness, what has happened? But mamas know, right? This is not my baby. That's my baby. So here you've got two moms, and uh, they both know that one of them is a liar. One of them is deceiving. But the problem is nobody else knows who is who? So here they are in front of this wise king. What's a wise king to do? He says, bring me my sword. And the captain of the guard, he instructs him. And when a king instructs, people jump to attention. He says, I want you to take the child and cut the baby in half, and you're going to give each half to the mama. This is the just thing to do. One of the mamas has kind of a smug look on her face. One of the mamas starts wailing and screaming and says, oh, no, 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 don't kill the baby. Give it to her. And that king says, aha, that's the mother. Isn't that wise? Brilliant, I might say. And the kingdom, well, this is how they re reacted. This story is actually in your Bible. This is in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 28. Listen to this. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe. I still do today, actually. This is brilliant. Because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. It's genius, right? I mean, it shows remarkable creativity. It shows remarkable wisdom. This story, in my opinion, is a story about 
the writer of the book that we've been studying for the last seven weeks in this Chasing series. To me, this is a story about Solomon. I believe Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Congratulations. You've made it through seven weeks of meaninglessness, and today we're going to conclude this series. I've been excited for seven weeks. I've been looking forward to this particular sermon because today, ah, today we're chasing wisdom. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it's filled with wisdom. Open up your Bibles. And I want you, while you're grabbing your Bible right now, do one of these things. Go ahead and stretch your fingers and your thumb out. You're going to need to do that. Get all limber because we're going to go all over the book today. We're going to exhaust Ecclesiastes. This is a bit of a book sermon. It's also a deep dive into wisdom because wisdom is all through the book. If you're following along in those Bibles that are underneath the seat in front of you, I'm on on page 663 of those Bibles. Now, we've spent six weeks. I want to catch up real quick, and I want to to show you the through line, the common denominator, if you will, through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. See if you can pick out the common denominator in these these, uh, passages here. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Interesting. Hold that thought. Go to the next passage. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 13. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. We talked about work just a few weeks ago. This is the gift of who? God. God gifts you even with the work of your hands. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Let's skip ahead to the next passage. I'm in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 22, just a few verses down. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? He's not named here, but we know who. God can. And God does. Skip ahead to the next passage. We're kind of looking through some high points of the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat and drink to find satisfaction in their own toilsome labor under the sun. During the few days of life, God has given them. Even your very life, the very breath that you breathe, it's a gift of who? God. Let's keep going. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15, I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Why? Then joy will accompany them in all their toil, all the days of their life. God has given them. Even under the sun, in this meaningless space, it's a gift from God. Let's keep going. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with joyful heart, for God has already approved. If you were to keep reading in that particular passage, you see that he's the through line there. God has given you this stuff under the sun. Let's skip ahead to chapter 11. We see it's not just for this life, but for the life to come. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. Skip ahead to where God shows up in this passage. God will bring you into judgment. We just celebrated communion. Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Robin just referenced that passage as we gathered around that table together. God is the through line. Don't miss this. This is the key point of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have not caught this already, 
meaning. Meaning comes from God. Let's catch up. We've been talking for six, this is seven weeks now. We've been comparing above the sun thinking with under the sun thinking. Under the sun, this is uh, without God. This is what it looks like to live life without God. And over and over again, the writer of Ecclesiastes invites you to lift your eyes up above the sun and glimpse there's wisdom in this. What God has done, life without God, is meaningless. We keep reading that word over and over in the text. This is the Hebrew word hevel, and it literally means vain striving. It's like trying to run up the world's longest escalator. You'll never get there. It's vain striving. Ecclesiastes calls for a heart shift. It's probably calling for an attitude adjustment. Those verses that we just read, joy is a gift from God. Satisfaction with life under the sun is a gift from who? God. So the call to action here is to grab wisdom from above the sun thinking and to bring it down here below the earth. Today we're chasing wisdom. There's good reason for this. The book of Ecclesiastes belongs with five books that are in your Bible and are described as wisdom literature. You've got Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Some people call it Song of Songs. This is wisdom literature. And there's so many verses in Ecclesiastes, as we're going to discover here in just a minute. You might want to keep doing this. We're getting ready to give those fingers a workout. They talk about giving life meaning through wisdom. They're like Proverbs. You find some similar Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, and then some of them are sprinkled through the book of Ecclesiastes as well. Wisdom. I've had this kind of lifelong definition of wisdom. I heard this first from one of my Bible college professors. I was probably 19 or 20 when I first heard this, and it kind of stuck. And I keep thinking about this my whole life long, that wisdom, as I would define it, he defined it, and I've kind of adopted this, is hard-earned knowledge from life experience. I want to be a lifelong learner, right? So I hope I am more wise the day I die than I am today, and I hope today I'm more wise than I was when I was 19 or 20. Life experience should teach me some wisdom. Here's the problem with that definition. Do you know anybody who is a bit older that is not wise? I, I know a few. I know a few folks that fit in that category. Let me ask it a different way. Do you know any older folks that are living far from God? The writer of Ecclesiastes would say, that's not wisdom. That's captivated, being captivated by under the sun thinking this is not wisdom. So this study has been causing me to question my definition of wisdom, and I'll explain more about that at the end of the sermon. Each week I've tried to share with you kind of a Cliff's Notes version of this sermon. Today is no different. Here's the Cliff's Notes version. Wisdom is quite undervalued in our world today. There was a time when experience was a driving motivator for wisdom. But in today's world, people seek new experiences, sometimes simply for the thrills. On a whim yesterday, I shared something on social media. Maybe some of you saw this. Some of you commented on it. Basically, I asked, who's with me? And this is called the Thank God Ledge in Yosemite National Park in California. Who's with me? Who wants to climb out on that ledge? That's a thrill, right? Well, as of about 4.30 this morning, the last time I checked that post, uh, about 35 of you said, no way. No way I'm joining you out there, buddy. You're on your own. And about eight said, I'd like a little bit more information. 
We do this, though, don't we? We seek temporary thrills. Maybe it's something like that, or maybe it's trying to bend the rules just a little bit in business. Maybe it's cheating a bit on the final exam. Maybe it's cheating in your relationship. You're in a committed relationship to somebody you love, but your eyes wander and you're seeking to chase a little bit of a thrill over there. This is not wisdom. The writer of Ecclesiastes would say it's quite the opposite. The book of Ecclesiastes is filled with wisdom. The question is, are we seeking after it? Here's the question that you have to wrestle with today because you're the only one that can answer this. Are you, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, the widest person or are you the fool? Here's a hint. The answer to that question is found in whose wisdom you're seeking to gain. Are you seeking to gain your wisdom or God's? Something got twisted up in the Garden of Eden, and since then humanity has been pursuing our wisdom, not God's wisdom. I want to challenge you today with this. Don't waste your wisdom opportunities. The book of Ecclesiastes, I could go on, I had to whittle this down to six. There are so many more, but we're going to look at six spaces. The writer of Ecclesiastes says you could waste your wisdom if you're not careful. So we're going to look at six wisdom wastes. Now, for each one of these, I've coupled it with a present-day proverbial saying, taking the text and whittling it down to a modern-day proverb. And then we've aligned that with a so what. So what do you do with that, right? So what I've got, if you're tracking, I've got six wisdom wastes, seven uh, present-day proverbial sayings, and seven so what's. That's six, seven, seven. Why? Because I was working on the message, and I discovered I had six, six, six in my sermon. And uh, I'm not, you know, suspicious, but uh, I figured that will never do. So I added a couple of the last two at the end of the message, and we're going to land the plane there. All right, first of all, six wisdom wastes. Don't waste authority. There's wisdom in this. You have to steward authority. You have some. You have some authority. You're also under some authority. What do I mean by that? Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about this in chapter 4, verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. I bet you've heard that if you've been in the church for long. Who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and to not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. I didn't mean to make that promise to you, God. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore... 
fear God. There's two stories that got referenced here in this passage early on. Remember the king and his successor? And one of them, what did the passage say? The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. There's two guys that get referenced there. One of them is Joseph, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. He was sold by his brothers into slavery, and then he's, he worked his way up to second in command. Remember, we talked about Egypt at the beginning of this series. The second one that gets referenced here is David, King David, Solomon's dad. My opinion, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. He's probably referencing his own father in that story. David was a shepherd boy. He couldn't rub two pennies together. Poor kid. He was chosen by God, and then he rose to become king. The problem, though, we see in verse 16, there was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. David, 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 we love you, but I bet there were some people in the corners of the kingdom, even in Solomon's day, that were still grumbling Ah, David levied a tax against my village. Or David, we, we want Saul. We want even the mad king Saul back. Here's the problem. You have somebody who's wise. You make them king. Then does everyone listen to them? No. Good thing that America is not like that, Right? I mean, we get all fired up every four years, and then we spend four years regretting the decision. Is anybody else super excited about this particular election year? You know that this midterm election, we've got all 435 seats in the House of Representatives are up for contest, as well as 35 of the 100 seats in the Senate will also be contested. You excited about that? The continuing news coverage and the media blitz and the Twitter raging. And check this out, verse 3. Remember this? It said, many words mark the speech of a fool. I'm not calling all politicians fools. But there's a lot of promises that get made during that cycle of, well, promising, right? And then do, does everybody deliver on their promise? Nope. There's these high-handed vows, and then once we get into office, we're going to do this, thinking that this is going to justify your behavior. The Old Testament would say, this might be the behavior of a fool. By the way, can I recommend a book to you? I got this book just a couple of weeks ago. I didn't read it. I actually listened to it on Audible. And, oh, my goodness, it will push you and encourage you and challenge you all at the same time. It's called Not In It to Win It. Andy Stanley is a pastor. He's the author of that book. If you haven't read it yet, I would highly encourage you, especially this year, as we're stepping into a contentious election season, this is a great book to read. All through the lens of wisdom, how do we steward authority? Don't waste it. Don't waste authority. I promised you some proverbial sayings. Here's the first one. Wisdom. Again, taking the text we just read and condensing it down. Wisdom is better than riches, power, and age. But if it is not passed on, it's meaningless. What wisdom are you passing along? This past week, I got a phone call from one of my boys who had had a blowout on his tire. And we talked through how to change the tire and how to get a set of four new tires for this car. He needs them, right? 
Hear me. Godly manhood is not measured in your ability to change a tire. It's measured, well, what did the Bible say? Look, back in chapter 5, there's a call there to kind of shut up with all your lofty under-the-sun wisdom. You should do it this way, you should do it this way, you should do it this way. Rather, the first so what, if you're taking notes, write this one down, stand in awe of God. Recognize that your authority, you are under authority, and it's God. He's at the very tip of that spear. The next place to waste wisdom is in the area of temptation. It's not just authority, but also temptation. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 5. Check this out. It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Again, remember we're asking the question, are you a wise person or are you a fool? Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. You ever spent time with somebody who just laughs to fill the space because they can't think of anything else to do in that moment? There might be some foolishness there. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. It's poetic language, isn't it? Do not say, why were the old days better than these? Lean into that one. We have a tendency, right, to go spend too much time there. For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. There's a whole lot there, but did you see the temptation? The second proverbial saying, if I were to take that and condense it down, would be this. Wisdom will preserve and protect, but trials will tempt you to abandon wisdom. You facing a trial right now? Are you facing a temptation? Wisdom would say, wait, don't succumb to that. Don't fall immediately to that trial or temptation, but wait and see God at work. Wait and watch God show up and show off in your life in the midst of your trials. But we try to short-circuit that, don't we? The writer says he's talking about being presented with extortion and bribes. What did it say in verse 7? Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Have you ever been tempted to round up or down to benefit you and the books? Have you ever been tempted maybe to take a shortcut and to grab that gain and just keep it as your own? The second, so what? says, so look to God. Are you trial? You feel trials? You feel temptation? Look to God even during those things. By the way, go back and underline these verses in your Bible. Verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 13 and verse 14. I love this. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he's made crooked? When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. All of this belongs to him. Don't waste your wisdom. 
Don't waste your wisdom on uh, temptation. Also, don't waste it on, on pride. Pride, what does the Bible say, comes before the downfall. That's actually a proverb that's in the Bible, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. One of these days, I'm going to preach a series and I'm going to title it, That's Not in the Bible. We throw around all kinds of proverbial sayings, right? Things like, God works in mysterious ways. It's not in the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. That's not in the Bible. The love of money. God helps those who help themselves. I hate that. That's not in the Bible. This too shall pass. Not in the Bible. God won't give you more than you can handle. Nope, that's not in the Bible. Talk about that to Job sometime, right? To thine own self be true. That's not in the Bible. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Perhaps you've heard that one. Not in the Bible. One of these days, not today, I'm going to preach that series. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride comes before the downfall. Don't waste your wisdom on pride. Let's read in verse in chapter six and see, or 7 and see what he has to say about this. In the meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Curious statement, why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Pride. What's it mean to be over-righteous? That's probably somebody that you don't want to hang out with. Overrighteous, especially in a religious context. And this is somebody who struggles with pride. Pride. It says, don't be overrighteous. Verse 19 says, one wise person is more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Last week we talked about philosophy and how the book of Ecclesiastes is timeless. It talks about modern and even postmodern philosophy. You can find it in the pages of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember this little a timely piece of wisdom from Lord Acton. All power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Which leads to the third proverbial saying, that idea of one wise person is more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Here you go. Wisdom can make you powerful, but power will lead to pride. Here's the problem. Wisdom is found in reaching up and to bringing some above the sun, thinking down here below the sun. The problem is this wisdom thing is a vicious cycle. You're still human. You reach up and bring some God power down. Unchecked, you're likely to corrupt it. The third so what is this, so fear God and guard your heart. Fear God and watch your heart desperately for pride. All right, here we go. Don't waste your wisdom. Also, you don't want to waste it on culture. We've got authority, temptation, pride, culture. Are you picking one of these? None of us have all of these lined up, right? Nobody's batting a thousand here. I hope you're grabbing one of these categories and saying, that's an area in my life that I need more wisdom. I'm going to grab that one and work that one into my week this week. Culture. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13 says, I saw, also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. 
There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Interestingly enough, let me show you a city. The name of it is Lachish. This is the city. By the way, this was built up actually under the reign of Solomon, in my opinion, the writer of Ecclesiastes. It was one of the cities that was meant to guard the edges of the kingdom. Well, about 300 years later, the Assyrian king Sennacherib built a siege ramp. We just read about such a thing. He built that, and that's how he took that city. Turns out they took several cities like that, including the city um, Azekah. Think David and Goliath, Solomon's dad. That city, archaeologists just uncovered a siege ramp like that around that city just a year or two ago. Let's keep reading. Solomon probably had seen something like that in his day. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man, so I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. And there is an awful lot there. Here's the proverbial saying. If you're taking notes, write this down. I would condense all of that down to this. Wisdom can save your life, but those who are saved are not guaranteed to be wise. Remember verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is why unity in the church is so important. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. There's something more important that he's calling you to do. First go and be reconciled to them. Then, then come and offer your gift. Remember what we just read in verse 1 of chapter 10 is dead flies give perfume a bad smell. So just a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You don't want to be that guy. So seek forgiveness from God. Keep reading the text. Let's read in uh, uh, how we're going to waste our wisdom. Another way you could do it is in the area of obedience. You've got authority, temptation, pride, culture, obedience. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 5, check this out. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I've seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stone may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If an axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, then just keep swinging away, right? No, no, we sharpen the axe. More strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it's charmed, the charmer 
receives no fee. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, their their wicked madness and fools multiply words. No one knows what's coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness the rafters sag because of idle hands the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. The fifth proverbial saying, let's take all of that and condense it down to this. Wisdom is expected from authorities But fools are often put in charge. Expect foolishness from sinners, right? Those who live under the sun are very content to stay there. Be careful of your esteem to those in authority, right? We give honor where honor is due, but be careful. Expect foolishness there. If if under the sun, thinking just tends to yield that. So what's the so what to that? What do you do with that? Well, you honor Jesus as the King of Kings. Be careful who you follow. Make sure that Jesus is absolutely number one in your life. This is the fifth so what statement. Here's the sixth way that you can waste wisdom. Money. Money is a way that you can waste wisdom, and oh my goodness, we fall victim to this. Let's look at the text one last time. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Ship your grain across the sea. Some of you have an older translation that says, cast your bread upon the waters. It's an investment, right? Merchants would take ships and send them out. This is an investment. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight, and do not or you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. That's a brilliant and obvious statement. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So sow your seed in the morning and in evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know what will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Let's take that and condense it, the sixth proverbial saying. Wisdom demands attentiveness with money, but even the smartest investments can fail. Anybody been tracking the stock market over the last couple of months? Twitter's up, Tesla's down. I'm planning a series on money and generosity for later this fall, and I'm going to save much of what we would say there for that. But do know this, the Bible talks a lot about money, and for good reason. Basically, the Bible says everything takes money and puts it into two big contrasting categories. Either you're dependent upon God or you're dependent upon money. So the sixth, so what? Recognize that God owns all of it. 
Everything you have, it already belongs to him. It's his. We tend to think of money in just in big terms, big numbers. I was reading a stat this past week. Get this. In the state of Nevada, we used to live there, so this caught my eye. And I used to do weddings in Nevada. The state of Nevada, the wedding industry, like in the casinos, is $2 billion a year. And they've gone a long way from those cheesy Elvis wedding chapels, right? $2 billion a year. Here's the deal. We tend to think of money just as big numbers like that that's somebody else. But God calls you to be a steward of your resources, your money. I read a stat this past week that 54%, this is a fresh, hot off the presses, post-COVID stat. 54% of evangelical Protestants, that's us, 54% say that their number one giving priority is not to a Christian organization. More than half of us, our number one giving strategy would be outside of the local church. Speaking of wisdom, I, I, want to, uh, I want you to know that the leaders of venture feel this same responsibility to steward ventures resources with wisdom. First off, I want to celebrate, check this out, 15 venture families since the beginning of this calendar year have begun their giving journey with our church. 15 families have stepped into new giving. That's cool. Whether you're new to venture or you're new to your faith, that's a huge step of commitment to begin serving your church and honoring God in that way. Occasionally, we're asked about the finances of the church and how we're doing. And some of you may recall an update uh, last fall I shared that indicated that we were behind. We were quite a ways behind budget at that point for the year. And some of you stepped up in a generous way, in an amazing way to help us finish the year strong. Perhaps you remember our executive pastor, Daniel, shared just a few weeks ago that uh, at the end of 2021, our giving and our expenses, check this out, were only $700 apart. Given where we were, that was incredible. And I know that many of us are cautiously watching and we're tracking economic indices, the stock market and inflation and this kind of stuff. This year, we've continued to remain cautious because right now we're about 14% behind our budgeted income. This has caused us to incur a little over $100,000 more in expenses so far this year than income. Now, thankfully, our finance team has planned to handle these types of fluctuations. That happens sometimes in the yearly giving cycles. And it's, it's possible, though, that I believe a few donors could cover that gap. What's more likely is that many of us, through the lens of wisdom, the way we view money, could answer this call to wisdom by taking the next step on our generosity journey. For some of us, that means we're going to give for the very first time. We're going to say, God, I feel the shoulder tap through the lens of generosity, wisdom, and how I handle my finances. I'm going to give to my church for the very first time, and we would celebrate that. For some of us, maybe for us that means we'll make a regular commitment to regularly give, maybe monthly or weekly, but it's a regular gift. 
And then for some of us, perhaps we would say, hey, you know what, I'm going to pick a percentage, 1% of my income or 2% of my income or 3% of my income, and I'm going to start there. I'm going to faithfully predetermine that gift to my God through my church. And then some of us, perhaps we'd take that percentage we're at and we would say, you know what, I'm going to bump it up a percentage or two because I want to be faithful. I want to be wise with the resources that God has given me. They're not mine. They're his. Some of us maybe will be challenged to, for the first time in our life, commit to the Bible. It talks about a biblical tithe, literal 10% of your income that belongs to God, even before we start talking about offerings after that. Maybe for some of us, we would say we're already at a tithe, but God has blessed us with some amazing things, and so we're going to take that one step further. Listen, I want you to hear this. Your leaders aren't panicking. We trust God. We want to be honest with you. And we want to give you the opportunity through the lens of wisdom and generosity to lean more into the wisdom of biblical finances in your life. All right, so let's go back to the larger topic of wisdom. Money was just one of six. Let's put them up on the screen. Did you pick one? Pick one. Authority, temptation, don't waste wisdom, pride, and culture, obedience, Money, which one is your action step this week? All right. Remember I told you I didn't want to end with 666. So we're ending with 677. I've got a seventh proverbial saying. Here you go. Let me sum it all up by saying this. Wisdom is precious, but it's fragile. So guard it carefully. How do you do that? Well, if you want wisdom, it begins by recognizing that God is God. You're not. That's the through line all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember my outdated definition we started this journey with, that wisdom is hard-earned knowledge from life experience. That's not a bad partial definition, but I think the book of Ecclesiastes would push back on that. Let me expand that definition just a little bit and say it's this. It's casting your gaze up. This is what wisdom looks like. It's looking above the sun, not limiting your thinking just to the knowledge that you stack up from life experience here on earth, but looking up and saying, God, what are you doing? What are you calling me to that's above the sun thinking, and how much of that can I grab and pull down into my life here? So let me leave you with the last, the seventh, so what? So, given those definitions, given that summation of wisdom from the text, are you a wise person or are you the fool? Would you stand up with me? I want to send us out of here today with a prayer, a blessing, to go out and to live life just like that, how he's called us to do that. But I wonder if somebody came in here today and you're wrestling with something or you're struggling with something or you simply want somebody to agree with you in prayer or maybe you want to respond to something from the message or something from witnessing one of those baptisms. Daniel, Pastor Daniel, will be underneath the cross and he would love to pray with you and partner with you in prayer on that thing. Please, when the rest of us are going that way, you come this way. He'd love to pray with you. If you're a guest with us today, I'm so glad that you're here. Stop by starting point on the way out. We'd love to love on you and tell you why we love our church. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for your Bible. We thank you for this series. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes that was timeless wisdom 3,000 years ago. It's timeless wisdom today. 
So let us live wise. Lord, I pray for the shoulder taps that you gave to us during that message, one of those six calls to action, not to waste wisdom. And for each one of us, as we lean into one of those more this week, I pray that you walk in front of us and you give us courage to follow where you're leading. We want more of your wisdom. That's a better way to live. And it's your name and God's name and Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, Venture. Have a great week. We'll see you back again next Sunday.